You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, The Running Public. Well, it's good to see you again, Bracken. It's good to see you. This is becoming a, a daily delight. Three times a week? That's getting there. You know, our listeners got concerned that uh, that we were going to like not be recording the running public per usual anymore. You know what that tells me? Those were casual listeners because we addressed that. We sure did. In the most recent episode. That's right. So we caught you. We caught you. Not doing your homework. Yes. Um, well, first of all, I want to ask you about your screen name. And we like to do this. And you like to hold me in suspense until I push the red button. I wanted a real reaction out of you. Okay. Um, your screen name says, I mean, dot, 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 come on, exclamation point. Yes, it does. So should we start with the good news? Yeah. Which we typically don't do. We usually, you always choose bad news first. I don't know what the news, I don't know either of these news is, news I, so. It's, it's one of those two. <laughs> the good news is Callie ran again and her foot is progressing and it looks like it's totally muscular. Great. So she's all in on Vegas. Fantastic. Great news. That's the great news. Bad news. I have a new little friend that popped up. In the last few days. Oh, come on. Are you serious? It's an inguinal hernia. Are you, are you serious? How did that happen? I do not know. I, I have three things I can think of. The only three things that I've done that would cause this sort of damage. But during it, I don't have a specific memory or recollection of a oh moment. Like I had effort that I put out that could be interpreted in hindsight as, I don't know, maybe, but it was just, I noticed it in the shower, not during an activity. I just looked down and I was like, well, that's, that's a little different. And then yesterday it was much different. So it, it got worse in the last 24 hours. Any pain with it? Very, very minimal. Only when I'm like bent over and constricted, and I feel like it pushes down into some other area. So yeah, an inguinal hernia, for people who don't know, it'd be like a it'd be like a tear in your lower abdomen typically, and then soft tissue starts to poke its way through the tear. Mm-hmm. Like it could be your small intestine, it could be just yep. muscle, it could be anything. So and this isn't muscle; it's very soft and I and malleable, and I can push it right back in. So you think it's guts? I think it's intestine, yeah. Um, I luckily got in today, so I have a 3 p.m. today. And basically, (laughs) I can't do anything about it right now. But I can find out if it's something that I can make exponentially worse to the point where it's not smart doing Hyrox or if Hyrox is just what the doctor ordered. It's going to be just what the doctor ordered. Rower sled push and pull burpee broad jump heavy running farmers carry wall balls all those things are nice and gentle on that that groinal abdomen region yeah, i'm sure it is you know i have a, an athlete who i coach i've coached her for the last like seven years also an in-person client her name is darla she's won the 50 to 55 age group the last mm-hmm. three or four years in the national series she's a stud anyway she has an inguinal hernia it's it's just there it is there is it? I, th- I thought hers was umbilical. 
No, hers is three inches above her umbilical. Drives her nuts the oh, way really? it looks. And so okay. she'll be well, she'll be doing abs, and then she's got a golf ball popping out. She's about golf ball size, and it drives her nuts. But sounds like uh, she's been training through that for the last oh, two or three years. Not saying that's the protocol for everybody, but um, yeah. she seems to make it work. Case study of one. So I went through a, basically a a gentle high rock sim today. Mm-hmm. I did some KT tape. I wrapped everything up the best I could. And what you I wrapped did... up your abdomen? Yeah, because it's real low. I'm talking like one inch above the bottom of my pubic bone. Hmm. Yeah, real low. So I KT taped up through that area and then wrapped as low as I could with some sports wrap and just tried to have some amount of structure down there. Obviously, it's it's a Band-Aid, but mm-hmm. I went through and I ran some intervals, you know, progressing from eight-minute pace up to five-minute pace. I did some skier intervals. I did some rowing intervals. I did some sled push, some sled pull, some burpee broad jumps, some walking lunges, some farmer's carry, and some wall balls. And I can do everything. What I can't do is Valsalva. I cannot. Yeah, but that's, that's so important for like a push. Right. So what I have to do is breathe through everything, which immediately slows my work rate and makes me feel cautious. And that's, I think, the most disruptive part is that I feel, I'm mentally limping right now. And that's frustrating. She's probably used to it to the point where she doesn't care and she can just go hard. I'm, I feel like I'm on eggshells, which is a weird sensation, like moving a 300 pound sled Mm -hmm. to be on eggshells while doing that. We're trying to do it the gentlest manner possible while always breathing out so that I take away that bracing down there. Cause the bracing is what pushes it through. Yep. Man, I'm sorry. I just threw my hands off. Like, come on. I'm not one to get too down or frustrated you know i can't stand when people say like f my life this always happens that's not me but i am a little bit frustrated right now at the timing of everything do you think it really has like it didn't go unnoticed for a while like i assume something like that you'd notice right away when it happens yeah the the moment it came on and it started very small i noticed it but i thought maybe swollen lymph node because that's that everything's going around right now or maybe just like a little bit of swollen fatty tissue there you have a fatty pad down there yep. uh you have some different things that could happen and it was very low and i didn't feel any i've had twice in my life once with you where i thought oh i just got a hernia where mm-hmm. i felt it tear and it turned out to be an, a, an abdominal strain one time and a slight tear the other but i didn't have any of those moments so when i saw just a real small bump I didn't worry too much about it, but yesterday it became clear. Last night, I was pushing out a little bit and coughing, and it was like heartbeat, like bloop. It, oh. it came out pretty good. So, I mean, it's not a massive one, but it's it, there's there's no way around it. It is a hernia. Man, I got a uh, I just got a nail gun. Mm-hmm. If uh, if you need to bring that over and doctor Dewint things up a little bit, I'm willing to do that for you. I don't know if a nail gun would be my choice. Okay. I, I could think of other things. Staple gun, maybe? But the nail, uh, nail gun would probably do the job. But anyways, um, damn, man. Well, I guess you're going to have to keep us posted as to uh, what the doc says. It's kind of, unless they tell me, listen, you're you're going to do something b- bad by doing this sort of competition. It's just not smart. If they don't tell me that, then I'm going to go. 
No way that's not in the back of your head. It sure as hell would be almost everything I'd be thinking about out there, which is like... Every movement. If, and if it wasn't as new, let's say you had time like over the last two or three weeks to play with it, figure it out. You don't. So it's like, it really is the worst timing. So I feel for you. But, yeah, we leave tomorrow morning. Mm-hmm. Well, it's just, it's, yeah, like you said, it's new. If I were callous to it by now, it wouldn't matter. Right. Because you'd know how you can push and how you can't. That The worst thing, being injured is not the worst thing for a competition. It's holding back is the worst mm-hmm. thing. When you know your ins and outs of your injury, you know how to adapt and, and overcome. I'm not sure. I've, I, I'm going to have to go in with a starting strategy and then just an open book of, all right, if this is feeling bad or I can't do this, now I've got to find a new way. And what I didn't anticipate, I anticipate the sled push and pull being bad. I didn't think about skierg and I didn't think about wall balls and burpee broad jumps extending up with force, you know, Mm -hmm. lengthening through there on wall balls and, and, and with the arms coming forward and hips forward on the jump, that's a disconcerting feeling too. Mm -hmm. So there's actually not a station where I don't feel it. Yeah, I would think skier would be bad stretching that out as well, and Skier's then pulling down just as bad as rowing. Yeah, I did it all yeah. today, and then we'll see if it gets bigger from that. All right, well, that's his terrible news. So it's not terrible; it's just not good. Yeah. All right, Rubis, well, it's no Rubis. Rubis got terrible. News. I can't solve I have... this from here. No. Other than my nail gun thing, which is all I got right now for you. I don't think you could solve it from right next to me either. That's but it wouldn't be for true. lack of trying. That's also true. It's something I haven't told you. So um, I think I got, I'm going to go in and get checked for, uh, it's not inguinal, but uh, some sort of lower abdomen hernia situation. Been the last about month. And it, it, I mean, every time I run, do stuff, it radiates down into the nether regions, which I've had, I've had lower abdomen strains before, which didn't radiate. Um, uh, And they ended up slowly healing on their own. I stayed away from core work. I, you know, healed. This one is only slowly getting worse, and I'm about a month deep. And you know, when it when it radiates down, which I've never experienced before, it's like this probably means I need to go in and get something checked out. So it's low, low. But I'm still getting through everything. Like you know, it hurts when I lunge now. Uh, it hurts when I squat. Every single um, every single run for the first five ten minutes, it's just all I can feel, and then it kind of goes away and then comes back. So I mean, we're kind of in the same boat. We're just in that age. When you're training hard, and I guess maybe I'll just speak for myself, like the list starts getting longer. It starts getting longer. If you were lazy POSs uh, through our 20s and 30s, very different story. But we haven't been. And this list will just keep growing. Like I hate to tell you, if you keep the throttle pushed down, stuff like this just pops up. It just does. I feel like late 30s, early 40s is the the meeting point of the two paths that, that diverged in the woods. Where if you were a lazy POS through your 20s and 30s, you start getting these injuries from everyday occurrences. Sure. Like you pick up a box and you get your hernia. Whereas we worked hard through our 20s and 30s and now our body just has, it's a little shop worn and we get it. So like, I think everyone arrives to this point. You either throw out your back sneezing or you throw out your back power cleaning. At some <laughs> point, true. everyone converges. Yeah. Well, we're on the former end of that potential scale. So I'd still take it through the intentional route anytime. Although mm-hmm. this one feels weird because I can't point to something I did wrong. Hmm. Then I can't either, by the way. Other than adding in core work. I wonder if I fatigued that area. Uh, I don't know. And I, I'm the same way. There wasn't a moment for me. And suddenly it's just the right side on down started hurting 
felt myself mm-hmm. up. There's nothing there that shouldn't be. You know, it's it's just what it is. But yeah, yeah. I got a new guest. You've got a new guest. Yeah, the new new little guest down there. <laughs> Don't say the word little, and you also say down there afterwards. Um, I'm gonna draw a face on it and see what my doctor thinks. <laughs> Probably wouldn't be the first time we uh, we launched the new podcast today. Well, yesterday, I guess, when this comes out, uh, Race Brain, which we are very excited about. Um, mm-hmm. It's a collaboration between me, you, Rich, and Jack. And uh, I had fun recording with you guys. That was a that was a nice little treat. Bracken. It was, and and adding a fourth person to the booth was tricky, and that'll be our worst. We'll just keep figuring it out as we go. So if that end product there is the worst we'll do, I'm pretty happy with that. Yeah, I would say. I mean, four is a lot to be everybody having their turn and chiming in and getting interrupted. But I would say pretty smooth for the first one. Yeah, yeah and if we look back to our first couple. Oh, I got, all the time I look back and think, I wish I didn't waste Hobie on our first one. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm not super proud of the work we did early. I'm proud that we did the work, but the result of those as a standalone product, that concept of you only get one first impression. <laughs> if if someone starts listening to that, I'm not sure if they continue or not. So, this was better than our first first episode well yeah and hobie hobie really helped us out there because he's a great storyteller so we didn't have to do much work which was also kind but anyways it's out so you need to go and you need to subscribe if you like listening to us i think you'll like listening to this podcast um it allows us to do a little more hot takes and you know be mostly lighthearted the entire time which is a lot of fun and uh so go give it a follow and if you like it confirm with us that we should keep doing it because it's sort of an experiment uh of sorts, but we're committed to it if you guys are. So go check it out. Yeah. On this podcast, we lean heavier into the coach athlete side. On that one, we're going to lean much heavier into the the person, the personality, and the overall love of the sports side. Yeah. Which is a much different feel and a different experience and a different product. And, and it's more fun. Not yeah. that this podcast isn't fun, but this is more informative where that one is more fun and and to put everyone's mind at ease for those who didn't listen last time this does not replace anything we do it's not in lieu of it's in addition to so nothing on this end changes nothing not a damn thing we're running into scheduling issues because i'm leaving for vegas and then three days after i get back we leave for ireland and we're going out of our way to make sure we keep our schedule set so that people don't think it's a the kiss of death of us expanding mm. out. So we're making sure this still happens. And if we don't get an episode out, it's absolutely Bracken's fault. Correct. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's I'll not bad. Listen, I'll be in Ireland. I got a hernia. We may do our first, well, second episode where only we only have one, ho- one of us on there while you're gone. What was the first? You were with your brother Macaulay, weren't you? You guys did an episode together. We did a training Tuesday. That's right. A training Tuesday it was. Yeah. You guys did well. That was a good. That was a good. You were lesson. out of town as well. Yeah, I had stuff going on around then. Yeah, yes, you did. Yeah. So, uh, should we get into to today? Let's do it. All right. Well, these things just seem to pile up, folks. They do, and there's been like a twinge of uh, guilt in the sense where every time we go back and do a Q and A. I look at my phone, I look at the date stamped on it, and I just think, like, we we can do better than that. 
we can do better. So we're doing better. And so we are. Yeah. Do we have one that is longer than two months old? From what? Let me see. No, we don't. We did pretty good cleaning up last time. I have 23 screenshots. I don't know about you, but um, no, I got April 22nd is my latest, but I don't know how far back those go. Oh, well, they might go back a few months. Nah, we're not going to get into that. Those numbers aren't important. Nope. No, it's not a numbers game. It's the thought that counts. Mm-hmm. And everybody knows you're not you're not good with numbers anyways. <sighs> nope. I couldn't even count the number of times I've said that. So I have exactly nice. So so I haven't looked at any of these questions. I don't know if you have the same cash that I do, but I figure we I have um, three. I have three. <laughs> so, so your so your wife sends them to me. She doesn't send them to you if she combs through one. I f- I think that early on in all of this, we had said something about what roles were going to be, and I think she stuck to that the whole time. Hmm. And I don't remember even what it was or why. But, yeah, she sends you the screenshots, not me. So it's either the early on we said something like that or she just knows I'm not to be trusted with messages, which is entirely an assassination on my character. <laughs> well, I, I'm, it's real easy to just put them in our Q&A folder and, and rip it. So um, can't tell you how long ago these are from because some of these don't even tell us. But uh, I say we just jump right in, man, unless you have any other updates you want to fill us in on. I don't believe so. I think this is this is enough. Let's dive right in. Yeah, let's do it. And I like this style where we haven't looked at the questions at all. I like just quick take answers that get whatever we really feel, not what we had the chance to look up and research. It. There's very little prep done over here at the Running Public. I would say like, what, 99% of our Q&As we go into totally blind. Not percent of the episodes, percent of the questions. Yep. All right. This is from Reese Cunningham. Living on the edge. Here we go. Hey, guys. Another shoe bracket to add in for review, dot, 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 sand. I have a beach-style 10K OCR coming up, which starts at the beach, onto hard-packed gravel, onto road, then back onto the beach. A total of six-ish kilometers of beach. That sounds brutal. Any tips on how you'd... uh, how you'd think or how your thought process, a shoe decision. I think he's got that funny. Uh, road shoes would make all the different, uh, make all the hard surfaces running easier, but does it for sand? None of the obstacles featuring in the race require grip, no Olympus or rope climbs, etc. Keen to hear your thoughts and hopefully before race day, laugh, laugh, laugh face. <laughs> When's race day? <laughs> it doesn't say. Then we're good. Did he say the consistency of the sand, what type it is? Um, no, sand. Okay. That's all the descriptor. Sand is one of those surfaces that you would think you want lugs for, but it almost doesn't help at all unless it's hard pack sand going uphill. Mm-hmm. If it's not hard pack uphill, you don't need traction in sand because it doesn't do anything. What you do want is some surface area. And lugs destroy the contact points with the ground. So I think road shoes are absolutely acceptable for this. I was going to say the exact same thing. It's about surface-to-surface contact. Or like a very, very mildly aggressive trail shoe. Something with shallow lugs, wide lugs. Like a a VJ Max, for example, might be a good Mm -hmm. sand shoe because it's got wide, flat 
shallow lugs. Um, yeah, it's all about that surface tension. That's so, I don't think I'd dive into it more. I wouldn't, I wouldn't go with an aggressive shoe, which would be probably the, you know, the easy go-to, but I think opposite. And I think that sometimes we get a little too concerned with having to use trail shoes for the trails outside of actual technical trails or mud trail shoes aren't even a requirement when i was training in colorado i wore the nike lunar racer for a lot of my trail volume in fact i had two different pairs one was an earlier version that was a little wider and felt like it had more cushion and i alternated the two pairs for all of my work unless i was going off trail or on nasty stuff even Mm. semi-technical stuff a road shoe that has any amount of lateral stability to it is really just as good but generally they're made more for running, which guides your foot through the, the foot strike a little better. And they're usually lighter. So there there have been some high level trail guys and ultra guys who used to race in the Adidas Adios on the trails and loved it. One, the earlier versions and people who have won ultras in the Lunar Racer and other things like that. So it's a viable yeah. option. Yeah, I agree with that. I uh, I don't know if this next one is a question or um, or just a statement. So I'm going to read it, and then if we don't have anything to answer, we'll move on. But it was sent to me by your wife, uh, Kenny Wade. Kenny Wade. I thought you meant the question was sent by my wife. Uh, no, but That's she sent it. That's where I draw it. the line. <laughs> hey, no, no, nothing like that. Um, she says, really, or he says, really appreciated part two with Nick Riker. Kirk, thanks for diving or delving into the faith aspect of Nick's journey with follow-up questions from his sharing in part one. As a pastor myself, I found so many overlaps between OCR, running, and the faith journey. I've prepped uh, prep talks, written devos, uh, devotions, I assume, and shared reflections on all the intertwined connections. Just throwing this out here again, but if you ever want a pastor perspective, albeit unique, to explore some of the faith, specifically Christ-centered journey parallels with OCR and how it's impacted my journey positively and tease some of those things, I'd love to be in on that, even with other guests. So basically, he's uh, he's saying he's a huge fanboy and says, we rock. And he's basically saying that there's some parallels between faith and OCR. That's what I'm gathering. I'd be interested to hear what he had to say, to be honest. As someone who grew up in a very religious environment and has sat through many, many, many sermons, I can say that it does not take much to draw a parallel between any activity and faith slash religion. So I think that it's absolutely true, but it's absolutely true in many facets. I don't think that there's any more in OCR than any other sport. I'm not discrediting the parallel. I just don't think it's unique to OCR. Mm. I've heard that same talk given by Tony Dungy about, you know, the football um, life and style and journey and comparing that to the journey through faith. And I've heard the same talk from, I'm blanking on the NCAA coach, about uh, basketball. And, you know, anyone who lives their sport finds their parallels. So, yeah, certainly exists. No, it's not unique to us. I would be curious what he has to say, though. I would be. Yeah. here. Yeah. Um, Tyler Spencer says, Hey guys, episode idea with high rocks world champs a month away. So we're not bad. Only a month behind on this one. Uh, with high rocks world champs, a month it's going to come out before the race. Hey, we did it. We did it. I would love. And I think many other listeners, if you had rich Ryan, Ryan Kent or Hunter on to talk about the, the race, I'm interested in their different race strategies and preparations, as well as a little sh- uh, shit talk about who's going to be there and what to expect. 
Um, says I will be there competing in doubles events. So would also love to hear from Brack and Callie again on a doubles breakdown. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Okay. Even if we had got this in advance, I don't think we would have done it because all the other media outlets for OCR focus on what athletes are going to the race and they interview them beforehand and then do it again right after to hear about the event. Whereas we like more of the story. So I think post race, a Ryan Kent episode is due. And post-race, we already have talked with Hunter that he's going to come on. Yep. And myself and or Callie, if this thing gets off the ground, <laughs> will be on to talk about it. But I can give you a brief overview of that. Hunter has spent the entire time since the Chicago competition slimming down, trimming up, and addressing all his cardio and work output weaknesses that were exposed then. He's been on the running train and on the high-volume output. Kent has been continuing to do what he's been doing, repeating the cycles and revamping and just re readdressing all the things he already addressed. Everything he did worked. He really had very little things pop up during the race. So he didn't have big an overhaul to make. He just had to repeat and reload. Mm -hmm. And Rich Ryan is pretty big all in on the bulletproof myself for the stations where I consistently lose time so that I can use my natural and hard worked for running ability to run myself in the second half back into the race without being too far behind from essentially the the ski the sled and the road mm-hmm. what do you think it's going to take for um you know I feel like we're going to see a different Hunter McIntyre than we saw uh, mm-hmm. last time around between uh you know when Kent beat him um, pretty convincingly. Uh, what do you think it's going to take for Kent to do it again? I very often, probably too often, make analogies and draw comparisons to the fighting world, be it boxing or MMA. Mm-hmm. But this is what I see whenever you see two titans collide. If early on there is an early knockout, the rematch generally goes the distance. And if the first fight is a knockdown drag them out war the rematch oftentimes ends a knockout you often get the the reverse event of what happened the first time because everyone readdresses what happened and somebody comes back significantly better and changes things occasionally a 12 round war results in a 12 round war again but hunter early on was delivering early knockout blows in high rocks He would destroy everyone so early that he basically had free and clear race for the second two-thirds of the race. Kent essentially knocked Hunter out early in Chicago. He caught him so hard on the ski and the sled that Hunter never had a chance. Mm -hmm. So both people have been knocked out by each other, and often that turns into either you repeat that knockout or everyone's so ready for the knockout and so well-prepared that you have to survive multiple knockdowns and keep getting back up to get to the far end of it. And that's what I think we're going to see. If both guys are able to handle the big blows early, which their fitness is capable of, if they can mentally stay on it after they take a hard shot or two, I think it comes down to the last station or two. So knockdown, drag out to the bitter end. Just a fight war, yes. I love it. I think if it, and I could be wrong because, you know, Hunter's full of bravado, right? He, we know that. Um, and Kent has an ego too, as he should. I would have one. Like you need ego to perform well in this sport. They both do. Very, they come out very differently. Um, but I think if anything in High Rocks uh, Worlds here this weekend, um, 
there is a chance that, that I think that shift could happen. If Hunter really is where he says he is, mm-hmm. that there is a chance the gap could be flipped from what happened in Chicago, whereas now Hunter blows something open. I just don't mm-hmm. see Hunter losing ground to Kent from this previous performance. I see that gap closing, and how hard has Hunter worked here and how dialed in has he been so um, it's going to be really fun to watch it will be if you look at the numbers on paper kent ran 57 i believe or 57 low in chicago and then hunter ran 55 something in dallas but they had roughly two minutes of discrepancy between their rock zone times Chicago had the slowest, longest transition time of any race in history, and Dallas had the shortest. So if you remove those two and just take the average between the two, they actually have almost equivalent performances. I think Hunter still breaks the record in Dallas, but the easiest way to do that in High Rocks is to be unopposed because then you can just run your rhythm and at the workstations the entire way through. So I still put them on almost even playing field based on their two best performances. So I don't think either one currently is capable of blowing the other one out physically. So it's going to be, does someone mentally crack when they lose ground on a station they thought they were going to be good on? Or if they both stay strong, it, they really do have almost the same ceiling, which is wild. Yes, it is. And Ryan Kent's done really good work to bridge that gap over the last yes. two years. Yep, very impressive. He might be the most improved mm-hmm. in terms of what we thought. We thought he had hit his ceiling. There were other guys like like Rich Ryan or Dylan, who, at least on the men's side, who we know weren't near their ceiling and could get there. We, I think we all kind of assumed we saw what Ryan Kent could do. He ran 59 or 60 several times, and we're like, yeah, that's... He's probably a 59, 58 guy, and then he comes out and drops almost two minutes. We're like, oh, my goodness. Yep. He hadn't hit his ceiling either. Yep. Um, next one, Colleen McCloskey says, I loved the Bachelor talk. Also, I just realized today that was the one season of Bachelor in Paradise that I watched, and I remembered you slash Carly but didn't realize it until the run today. So we had a listener <laughs> following along on the running public that had no idea that had Does watched Does that make it. you happy? Is that a point of pride? Yeah, that there's separation there, of course. Yeah. I feel like when you tell when somebody finds out you're on a reality dating show, you only lose credibility, like off the cuff, like knee-jerk reaction, oh, yeah. douchebag, right? Which, in this case, isn't far off the mark. It's so true. It's so true. <laughs> Anyways. Every once in a while, snap decisions are correct. And she says she wants us to do the Bachelor discussion. Um on air that was just uh chiming in no question there i guess listen i'm over it <laughs> yeah, i had yeah. my month of passion and now i've decided to let sleeping dogs lie. <laughs> all right we'll move on from that uh you're looking at your phone do you have a question you want to poke in there or should i keep rolling no 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 keep going i actually yeah there was one <laughs> speaking of people recognizing you versus not recognizing you lisa and i ran together on tuesday in Lake Geneva on the Lakeshore Path, and as we're starting our run, a woman comes running towards us, very purposeful in her stride. She just finishes taking a gel, so clearly she's out there doing something, and she's running hard. And she gets a look on her face, pulls her headphone out, and says, I'm listening to you right now, and puts her (laughs) headphone back in and keeps charging. That's amazing. When I went down to the Zumbro Trail Race, uh, I had three people at the Zumbro Trail Race. Wow tell me that they listen to the podcast and keep up the good work and they were not ocr people but they were local running community people so so much better that way organic i assume she knew lisa because we were in lake geneva 
And that's where Lisa's from. But no, no connection to Lisa. And I wanted to turn around and jog with her for a bit, but she was very mm-hmm. clearly doing something serious. So I had to just let it go. You need a blue check mark. I need a blue check mark. You need a blue check. I should tell them, listen, I was recognized on the lake path Instagram. Give me yeah. my check mark. Send in your application. Which is I she believe tagged us in they... a post, so oh, she did. I got to see who it was and That's nice. Steph Civilati. So Steph okay. Civilati, you made our day. Thank you very much. Hey Steph. Um, All right, this is from Matt Quinlan. It says, I'm not sure if this is where to post questions for the podcast, but, um, well, you did it right because it's here. So if you could compile a list of minimum strength standards for Spartan Race, what would they be? Things a person could find or do in a gym, maybe, pull-ups, deadlifts, bar hangs, etc. I ask because I try to find the balance between lifting and other training, as in like running and stairs, I have lots of time, but I still want the best bang for buck for my training. I was lifting weights three uh, three days a week. I've just bought, uh, brought that down to two days. Also curious what you would consider too little or too much meathead stuff. Thank you. And then he says, one more thing. I tried to go out easy. I tried to go out easy thing, probably too easy again. Uh, but I found the benefit to staying in contact with the first few guys. It's not about fitness. It's about mindset. I found myself not seeing the purpose of killing myself to move from eighth to seventh. What's the point? The problem was I came in fourth, only 30 seconds behind third, and I had no idea. Obviously, that's on me. But if I had known I was actually with the top guys, I would have been willing to be in that pain cave for a while. Just food for thought on the contact thing. That is everything there. In reverse order, that is the trickiest part is that whole staying in contact thing. Because, yes, you... Unfortunately, as humans, we need visual confirmation that we're doing well, oftentimes. Yep. The tricky part is that if you weren't moving up quickly through the field, you were probably at the proper pace. It's just that your fitness and ability in that moment didn't align with where you wanted to be in the race. Oftentimes I hear this, so I started out slower and I just never caught back up. So that's because people were moving faster than you. Mm -hmm. And does it come down to a mental block of I couldn't see him, so I couldn't try? Or I was trying hard, and I just couldn't make up ground. Well, if going out slow led you not to be able to run any faster, going out faster wouldn't have allowed you to work any harder. So it's always tricky to encourage people to go out slower because some people do need that contact in order to be able to work hard. But oftentimes we read too far into the, well, it's because I went out too slow. I wasn't able to run fast. Well, that's counterintuitive to what running tells us. But OCR is just different enough that it muddies the water. Yeah, I mean, we've had this conversation a number of times over over the past couple of years. But, you know, OCR is probably, I would say, of all the events I've done, it's it's the hardest to gauge your effort appropriately. Yeah. Um, because there's so many nuances within the race and you don't necessarily know the exact terrain until you get on it. And, you know, you go ahead and look at a course map and you're like, oh, here's a flat section I'm going to push. But then you get to that flat flat section, it's shin deep mud and you realize I can't push. Christ, I can barely power hike. Mm-hmm. And so there's all of those things that get confusing. And so because of all of those things, once you're detached, it's really hard to get back attached and so it's really trading blows if you want to race up front with people that are uh, even a little better than you. A lot of times you can you can kind of not fake it because that's not the right word, but you can fudge it a little bit if you're willing yes. to stick your nose and hang on in those times of dire need when you're really at wit's end because usually the race will end up coming back to you or something like that. And so 
Um, it's a valid question. It's a valid thing to talk about. And it's probably the only endurance event in which I would say like not managing your effort appropriately may yield a better result at the end for the sake of contact. So I think there's a lot of merit to what he's bringing up. It's just tricky because you can also fall off the face of the earth in OCR if you overdo it early. So both sides of the coin. Whenever I hear this, I often think this is more of a matter of not knowing your pace than than having picked the wrong strategy. Because if you intimately know your exertion levels, this question is kind of a moot point because you don't have to make a decision. You just run what you know your body can do. So the less you know your pace, the more you second guess how you ran it because you just don't know what it truly feels like to be absolutely at your furthest limit. And if that's the case, then next time you go out harder and you use this little pendulum effect of dialing in how hard is actually hard for me. Yeah. Because the races are painful either way. So you have to find what's a manageable pain. I agree. To the the first part of his question, which was, what are some strength metrics for OCR oh, to shoot yes. for? Now, we had, we had this conversation, too, at some point. I don't remember what episode it was. I wish I could direct back. I can't recall. We talked about it with Hunter, but it was more about the hybrid racing. Yeah. And then we talked about it on a Q&A, I think. But my, my views have changed since then, Kirk. They have. Okay. So basically, like, let's just break it down for people like our opinion, men, women, let's give big movements like squat, deadlift and pull-ups. I think the three most important things for our sport. What do you think? Well, last time I I think I said, you've got to be able to deadlift at least 185, if not 200, 225 in order to, to just get the tire done. But the tire doesn't exist in our sport anymore. I know. And so if I look across the major race brands, I don't care anymore about lifting metrics as long as you're getting stronger. If you came in with 135 able to deadlift and now you can do 155, that wouldn't have got you past the tire in the past, but there is no tire. So now that's enough. I now think it comes down to Mm pull-ups and then I would actually throw in something like walking lunges or, you know, for max reps or what your 20 rep squat is matters more than a, a one by five three or even a one rep max because they've kind of removed the major brands have removed the true strength component from the race i don't know how you feel about that but i don't have metrics anymore for deadlift because you don't pick anything up off the ground there's two explosive movements in uh spartan race anyways and maybe ocr that's left uh the tire would have been the most power generating movement required and then from there you have basically a hercoist and you have a plate drag that are going to require like muscle exertion, power output, and maybe Atlas Stone when it's sloppy. Sure, a lot of that's just contact but with the technique. ball too, right? Yeah. So I absolutely agree with you. I assume they lost their Yokohama partnership, or that just that partnership ended, and so that was yeah. They didn't resign. That. We don't like that obstacle, anyways. Yeah, clearly it was it was actually a really nice one to have out on course to change things up. But <laughs> I agree with you. I, I think just to be functionally sound, I think. Um, higher rep scheme is going to be more indicative of what you can do out on course now than lower rep scheme. And as long as you can handle your own body weight through space, well, mm-hmm. you can tackle any overhead obstacles well enough. And if, if you can't squat that much or you can't deadlift that much, I don't see how it's really going to impact you as far as ability to obstacle. Now, 
we can argue and split hairs on what it does for your running, like working yes. on your deadlift and working on your squat. But for OCR specifically, if we're talking about like just that that nuance, I I think your answer is correct. I think you don't worry about metrics. You just work on being your best self and and you're going to be ready. Overhead work, more yeah. overhead work. That's that's all really I can point to. Yeah. Yeah, do I have every single one of my athletes lifting? Yes. Of course. But do we have a metric we need to hit in order to be ready? No. It's improve or maintain while being at potentially a lighter weight or at a faster running ability. That's all it comes down to. If you wanted a metric, again, it's hard to say correlation versus causation, but I don't think there's a single pro male out there that would be able to do less than 15 or 20 strict pull-ups. I'd be shocked. And females probably minimum of 8 to 10 on the women's side. So I don't know if you need to be able to do that, but that's how it correlates. It's like 5K. Can you be successful without a sub-16 5K? Yeah. But can every successful male in the sport run under 16? At this point, yeah, they can. So metrics are tough in our sport. They are. That's kind of what makes it great. But people will argue, well, what about the carries? What about the bucket? What about the sandbag? Nah. I mean, we touched on this in our Race Brain episode that dropped yesterday. But um, look at the end of Big Bear last year and and we had a VJ Jones out carry Ryan Atkins. And, you know, you look at the size difference there and it's, it's pretty notable. And Hobie call, I still argue might be the greatest carrier in the sport of all time. Hobie call 140 pounds. So that's more about in muscle endurance, not raw power. So those are out the window for the carries in my opinion. And so those are non-factor. I've referenced this many times. So those of you who have heard it are probably sick of hearing it, but for any of the newer listeners, the most telling stat I ever saw in OCR, Robert Coble started putting timing mats out on course before different sections, back before we had the different sectors on Athlinks, which mm-hmm. kind of isn't a thing anymore. But he tracked every heavy carry for the NBC series in 2014 and 2015. And the top carrier in the sport was Cody Mount. Mm. And second in for one of the seasons was Chad Trammell. It was Cody, Hobie, myself, and Chad Trammell were the four fastest carriers that season on average. What, what was Cody, 150 pounds? Cody was always about 145, 145. Because he was right at that weight where the Herc hoist sometimes on a heavy, rainy day was almost counterbalancing him. Got it. And Chad Trammell's probably about 155, 160. I was at the time 167, down to 164 by the end of that season. You know, Ryan Atkins had some of the good carries in there as well, but Mm -hmm. he was either leading and not pushing as hard. That was part of it. These are the guys that were using the carry as a weapon. But the fact that guys under 170 were leading the timing splits means that it was the engine and a functional leg power debate, not a weight room debate. And that was at the time where I was lifting the least out of all my years in the OC, in OCR. My time in Colorado, I lifted the least. Yeah, I just think the argument to put on strength and muscle for the heavy carries in quotes is it's just not valid. So, now hybrid racing, total different story. Yep. Oh yeah. If you're not deadlifting and squatting well over 300, you're in trouble on those courses. Yes, you are. At least deadlifting over 300. My goodness. All right, Nick Spencer says. Um, have you guys ever tried Newton running shoes? The company has a different philosophy in designing shoes in the forefoot. I have been looking at them and wondered with your exclusive, uh, extensive knowledge of, of shoes, if you would ever use them before or what you thought of the different design style. 
Thanks. I defer. Yes, I have. I I know they have some uh, some research and some data behind what they do, but I'm not buying it for the general populace. Newton's concept, for those of you who aren't familiar with Newton running, it's basically just a normal shoe, and then it has a wedge, a thin rectangular wedge in the forefoot that encourages you to forefoot strike. And I just can't get behind the idea that every foot needs a the same size, same placement under your foot, four foot wedge in order to help you appropriately. It also really throws off the drop of all shoes and the way that the heel and toe integrate and work with each other. So there are some people that love it and swear by it, but I generally look at the top of the sport and the sub elite to see how effective, truly how worthwhile are technologies. Because the people at the very top will sign for anyone who pays them big money. But under that, where people have the choice and it's all kind of the same, how many people are running in on, in Newton, in Ultra, in things like that that are kind of the fringe brands. When you get to choose whatever you want, you probably get it free, but no one's paying you a lot of money. The lower end of the top of the sport and the sub-elite there are very few people that use those. So I just, I've used it myself. I just don't like anything that forces a stride change. And it didn't feel super smooth to me. Even the shape of it doesn't make sense anatomically to me. But I'm also not a podiatrist. Well, I've never run in them, but they sure, I imagine it's got to be like one of those things where like, you know, when you have a rock in your shoe and you just like can't get that out of your head you're like freaking rock in my shoe now i know it's not that dramatic of course with the newton but i have to imagine like every time that foot hits the ground especially at first you're like there's something on the forefoot of my shoe there's something on the forefoot of my shoe did it feel that way a bit it was it was actually smoother than i anticipated it being i to me it reminded me of a track spike mm-hmm. where track spikes do not make sense anatomically for your stride in terms of the way it supports your stride and how you think it would feel, especially sprint and middle distance spikes would have a built up almost platform in the front of the spike. Mm-hmm. But one of my favorite spikes I ever ran in was the Mizuno Geo Sniper. And it had a big platform in the front and it felt buttery. I could run it up to a mile on it. It just felt, it just worked right. But that's how this felt for me. It was like, it was so significant that the only way to run is perfectly. And the only sustainable way to run perfectly is for a fast effort that's done sure. quickly. So I could see racing in one of their flats for like 5K or 10K. But that's about the only tool I could see myself using it as. But there are some people that swear by them, just like there's people that swear by Ultra or swear by On. In fact, On shoes I like the most out of any of those three. But I'm a Nike Kennedy's for life on the tracks i wanted to love that shoe i raced in it for two years but it wasn't made for my foot it just puts you right where you need to if you're a midfoot striker it threw you to your toes but in a way that was acceptable just it was like boosters when you decide to kick it in gear it did what it needed to do it was one of only two spikes i ever blistered in on the heel i mean i've got it right here yeah, there it is. It's a beautiful shoe, and it matched our maroon and gold to some extent of our high school, uh-huh. so I wore it. I don't know if you can tell, but this baby's wore through. Yeah, I can see that. I loved it, but I loved the idea of it more than I loved the execution of it. Mm. I loved both. Um, next one, Thomas Remmer says, 
Uh, question for both Kirk and Bracken. I was wondering if there was any research on running and breathing and what your thoughts are on that subject. Should I be nose or mouth breathing during training, racing, and does a certain rhythm give better result? I have heard, seen various opinions, but none of them match with each other. Kind regards all the way from Denmark. Thomas. Tomas. I was watching a movie the other day, and I don't even remember what movie it was, but someone was teaching someone how to shoot a pistol. And he basically said, get in your wrestling or your boxing stance to find your center of balance. And the guy said, I don't know how to do that. I don't know what that is. And he said, it's simple. Go ahead, stand in front of me. And he slightly pushed him in the back. And he took one step forward and landed in a bit of an athletic crouch. And he said, there you go. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, you could fine tune that with a boxing or wrestling coach. But one foot forward, one back, a good bit of weight. St- and I feel like that is how breathing is. When you have to think about it, there's no, there's almost no way the average person could say, I think this is how I'm supposed to be breathing. Mm-hmm. But if you just push you into a run and say, go run hard, your body's going to get oxygen. For most of us, the way it's supposed to be getting oxygen. The people who really, really make a living, like it's a tent pole issue for them, breathing. We, we no, You're not utilizing your lungs and your diaphragm correctly. Most of the time, I just lump them into snake oil salesmen. And that's going to frustrate some people out there, but we're talking that 0. 0.1, 0.2% at maximum, like that 2% issue. Like mm-hmm. These are small little things, except for the extreme outliers. There are some people that truly need to learn how to breathe correctly. But for the, for the most part, you just go out and run and your body's going to be just fine. There's that debate over how many breaths in for every, str- or how many strides you take between every breath, but your body's going to settle into that naturally. So I I don't even get into it most of the time unless people have a significant problem with it. Like I was holding my breath at the end of races in track and I had to relearn how to force myself to breathe during those times. Some people forget to open their mouth sometimes. You know, you have to retrain little things, but I don't think there's this big secret in like this energy pathway you haven't tapped into yet. Yep, I think it's a good question. Um, my simple stance on that is if you are thinking about it, uh, you're, you're probably doing it wrong. It should be so autonomic when you are out there that, uh, if you're thinking about it, you definitely have probably an issue with your breathing cadence Mm -hmm. and rhythm because you're thinking about it and automatically your body's not naturally doing what it needs to do. At times there's, it makes sense to get a deeper breath or full oxygen exchange by making sure you exhale all the way sometimes and resetting. Like I think runners do that every so often out on, on course or when you're working hard. Yeah. I do the same thing. I do that after obstacles a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's ways to combat side stitches and things like that. If based on your breathing, which have, have helped me in the past, mostly with exhaling again, but for Mm -hmm. the most part, if you're not dealing with like an acute issue, um, if you're thinking about it, um, you're doing it wrong. I almost guarantee it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think you touched upon it. It's, uh, when people have issues, it's an exhaling problem. Usually nobody struggles to breathe in. It's, they struggle to fully breathe out. And so it's really a one, it's a one prompt system generally, which is exhale because your body has to inhale afterwards. You watch Eliud Kipchoge run a marathon, and for probably the first two-thirds until he gets to work, he appears to be nose-breathing the entire time. Yeah. And it doesn't even, it's not even where his lips are slightly parted, but you can't tell if he's breathing. His lips are just pressed together, and he's nose-breathing. Generally, people breathe mostly in through the nose, out through the mouth when they're running, and the faster and harder they work, the more anaerobic you get, the more starts coming in through your mouth as well. But it's the exhale. If you're pushing out 
you're fine. It's just like jumping into cold water. All you have to do is remember to breathe out when you get there and you're going to be fine. You won't hold your breath because you have to start that, that response you have by exhaling. So one of the simplest ways to improve like um, volume of intake is by actually exhaling completely. Like if you don't exchange all the oxygen in your lungs, then you have you, you have a smaller tank to inhale with your next breath, so to speak, of fresh air that can feed those muscles. So um, something to think about. Yeah, but diving down that rabbit hole, I'm sure there's people who are going to disagree with our sentiment on that. As far as like, if you're thinking about it, you're doing it wrong. I'm sure some people stand on that rock where like you have to think about sure. it to maximize your your potential, but I'm not one of them. There are breathing specialists, and I think that they're necessary for people with breathing problems, but I do not personally have any experience finding an athlete who that's their tentpole thing, who was a different athlete afterwards, unless they had a problem prior. Mm -hmm. You hear it a lot with cramping, stomach and side cramping, that it's if you learn to diaphragm breathe a little bit more, that goes away. So that's the closest I've come to like a zero to one moment where someone works on their breathing and they're a different athlete. Outside of that, I've never I've seen people go to all sorts of breathing specialists. I've never seen someone come back a changed athlete because there's just there's nothing to unlock. There really isn't. It can mm -hmm. change you in yoga, it can change your stretching game, it can change your meditation game. It doesn't change your VO2 max. It doesn't change your anaerobic threshold. It doesn't change any of that, uh, despite some people really wanting to believe the contrary. You know, in 2018, I went through a pretty frustrating bout with my breathing and asthma, uh, in quotes, asthma. And I went through all the testing and um, saw the pulmonologist and all that stuff and the allergy and asthma doc. And you know what? where I got sent? To a vocal coach. Really? Vocal cord dysfunction. It had nothing to do with my inhale, exhale. It had everything to do with my vocal cords basically contracting and not letting go, restricting my airway. It wasn't even a breathing issue. It was a muscle tension issue. Worked through some of that, and it actually helped tremendously. I still use some of those techniques to date, but it had nothing to do with my breathing itself. It had to do yeah. with like underlying uh, tension, we will call it, which was very interesting. And so I think that could be the case for – there's always like – like they say half the time like – um if you think you're asthmatic, a lot of us end up having like some sort of esophageal or vocal cord dysfunction in which we're just restricting our own airway, but it's not true asthma. Anyways, we could go down that rabbit hole a little ways. We won't, but there's just another example of, um, had nothing to do with my breathing. Interesting, isn't it? If you have a problem, it can be fixed with those type of specialists. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have a problem, there's not a performance enhancing breathing technique that exists. No, yeah. I laughed at them when they said, go to see a uh, voice coach and it was the right move. I love that our medical system for all that it gets wrong can still pull off things like that, that there's someone mm -hmm. out there who had the, the ability to step back and see things. That's awesome. That's a yep. success story. It was. Yeah. Made me run around the parking lot until I went full blown what I thought was asthmatic. So I was out there running, uh, I had a quality workout that day, I remember, and I had to go out in the a road out there and just go back and forth until I felt like I had the symptoms. And so they got as in depth as where I ran out. I was like starting to go <gasps> and I was like, it's a time. And then they hook you up and they make you blow into spirometers. And they're like, you don't have asthma. Your metrics when you're feeling this way or just after are the exact same as they were before. Wow. Your symptoms have already alleviated because your vocal cord has stopped contracting. If this was true asthma, you would have significantly decreased function after the, the attack kicked in. So they got down to hairs with me. Yeah, it was, uh, it was interesting.
I remember my legs were so tired that I couldn't get, I couldn't work hard enough because I had done a quality session earlier that day. It was a interesting side note. All right. Um, Caleb Conlin says, I've been reading a lot about cycling training recently. One workout uh, in parentheses I've seen as a staple in most cycling plans are over unders. These are programmed most often in shorter hard races like cycle cross or uh, cross country racing. Curious why we don't see a version of these types of sessions in running. I think the short answer is we do. It's a staple of a lot of college and pro programs. It isn't used in generalized training as much because it's harder to hit without the guidance of a coach there or without a wealth background knowledge of your own body on how to hit things. Uh, for example, John DeWitt, the guy that I train with sporadically, who's a was he two seventeen thirty marathoner. I used to run his in and out of them all the time. He'd go in and out of 450, 510, 450, 510. And I'd just run his 510s as my sub-threshold work, and he'd run them as his slight recoveries. Mm-hmm. And he'd go like 1,000 on, 800 off. It's fartlek training, essentially, with faster offs. And it's very effective, but it's hard for the untrained athlete to hit. On a bike, it's a little easier because you have this magical metric called power. And when you can just watch the the wattage on your screen, even an untrained cyclist can hit the wattage if it's correctly identifying their fitness. If it's dialed to their fitness and you have your two wattages that you need to hit, you can go back and forth all day. But a runner with untrained runner, when you're going off heart rate response, trying to hit two different heart rates, it's never going to come down. And if you're trying to hit paces, unless you're doing it on a treadmill, it's really hard for them to do. And it's really hard for an untrained runner to recover at an easy pace versus standing still. And I think that's the biggest reason why you see much more of threshold work or standard intervals rather than advanced fartlicks, which is basically what in and outs are over-unders. Yeah, there's a there's a lot of nuances there. Um, you could almost look at like over-unders, maybe like a float, so to speak, a workout with like a true float as I'm maybe starting to understand that better. You're going faster pace, but then dialing back to something that's still work, but not burying yourself work. Um, and then you have like, if you talk about our sport specifically, most of this stuff, like how do you really, how do you really decide on a metric if you're on the trails with undulation and technicality? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you mentioned heart rate, but the drift on that post heart effort is tough to dial in. And and so I just think it's like, it's a little more complex. And the only way to really do it properly would be to pick pacing on a controlled surface, uh, which we don't often advocate because it's not race specific for most of you guys listening. And so that's where like the hiccup sort of lies. And then on top of that, you have to be so in tune with your body, more in tune than most are going to be. So for like a coach like Bracken and I to prescribe, like you're going to go in and out of seven minute pace and then 715 pace in and out. Yeah, I think some people could execute it, but it's it's kind of a big ask, I think, for prescription reasons, especially if you don't know uh, your athletes metrics perfectly. And so um, we just it's just never top of mind. It's not one of my first go to's, I think, is, yeah. is what it comes down to. But it's not because it's not effective. It's a very good race prep workout, and you can fudge the numbers a little and make it a great base workout. I think you see it a lot in cross-country. 10K runners do it. 
marathoners do this type of work, half marathoners, you see this, it's really like a staying power workout. And there's a lot of benefit to that. It's just easier for someone to prescribe a ladder or 10 by thousand than it is to do ins and outs because you know that they can handle it. But we do two on, two off, five on, five off. That's one of the standard workouts we do is like that 60 to 80 minute session. Uh, even even the one, two, three fart lick, if you run the easy hard enough, uh, I do one called the 30, 30 plus. It's basically in and out of 3K pace, 10K pace until you crack. Yep. That's a that's a version of that. There's going in and out of threshold and faster than threshold is the classic way to do it. But that's just so demanding on a novice. Yeah. And the way I look at an over under is like the under or over, I guess how you look at it, under pace or over pace. Like when you're laying off the throttle, it's still like a workable rate. It's yes. not like, so it's, it's, you have to be able to like keep the pedal push down, but not all the way down. So you're like somehow kind of recovering, but you're not really sure. And it just leaves, I think gray area would be the dislike about that. Um, unless you're hundred percent confident in what, what, where you're at and what you're capable of, I think so. Think about that John DeWitt workout, 510, 450. There's not a huge variance there. Is he going entire miles at that? One full mile at 450? Or is he going in out of those paces? 1,800, 1,800. Oh, okay, got what he was got doing. Yeah. Roughly like that. Or 1,000 on, 1,000 off. But that workout, that 20-second gap is significant to an elite athlete. But a 20-second yeah. gap to a six-minute miler, you know, going 647 minutes, there's not much discrepancy between that. So then you have to figure out how much space do I have to give this athlete? And some for some coaches, probably ourselves included, you can get an equal response off of a simpler workout that you know that they can hit. Yeah, well, 450 and 510 might end up being, you know, 930 and 1015 for somebody else uh, or the 930 and 1030 pace even. And that's that's substantial. So then, yeah, you're doing sort of like calculated math and we know that you hate that. So it's probably the only math I ever do is running math. Yeah, me too these days. Um, John Britton. Uh, two questions. Sorry, Caleb, great question. I do appreciate that question. And yeah. I, I say experiment with it. They're good workouts. You mm-hmm. feel strong off those. Yeah. Um, John Britton says, uh, first during a build, is it beneficial to add in zone two miles after an interval workout? I'm low on time. He's training triathlon. He says, and struggling to fit in a long run and a quality run workout weekly. Second, if heart rate is higher than usual due to fatigue, lack of sleep, etc., does that mean that the energy system correlated to that heart rate zone is being reached at slower paces or that heart rate isn't reliable during that workout to know which system is being used? I get confused when people say power is more accurate than heart rate because of heat, sleep, etc. effects, but wouldn't that make heart rate more reliable if it is letting you know you're working aerobically or anaerobically at different paces than usual? Hope that makes sense, and thank you. Uh, to well, where do we want to start? Well, I think it, you can e- easily address um, where he says putting an extra zone two miles after an interval workout. Uh, for someone who's crammed with time, I think that's a fantastic idea. If you're going to swing the hammer, swing it hard. Um, and good luck staying in zone two if you've hit an interval workout <laughs> hard afterwards. You may just have to accept zone three, middle and below. Um, because it's cardiac drift is real after interval sessions. But I think that is a great bang for your buck. If you're in a time pinch, you're on vacation, you're going to fall a day short, hit a quality session, and then go run an extended cool down of 60 to 90 minutes. And there you have your total time on feet. And uh, 
and done in a fatigue state, which can be beneficial, especially for like true endurance athletes. So in that regard, I think he's onto something. I think that that would be uh, two birds, one stone, so to speak. Yeah. And I've done that. And the only danger there is that you wind up getting as close to what junk miles are as I've ever found in my own running in that I have sloppy form. I'm running really slow, but my heart rate's still up. I just feel like I'm not getting anything really good out of it. And it ends up really depleting me sometimes, especially in hot weather. I have some memories of some 10K to half marathon style workouts I was doing where I'd get done and I'd want to get 13 or 14 miles on the day and I'm only at nine and I'm trying to do more. And I end up like 100% more trashed afterwards than I would have been without that. So don't be afraid to put some mileage before the workout as well. Because once you go to run hard, you generally click into it and get it done anyway. So yeah, front or back, it works as long as you're running with your normal form. I do think about some times in which I've I've been really happy with my fitness. And now would be one of them. And then a few times in the past where, you know, you and I would meet at Granite Peak and we'd do like, 30, 30 intervals uphill and we throw some carries, but then we just go for 90 minutes afterwards yep. after doing some really tough stuff. And you're right. Smoked me for days, even sometimes sat in me like a big, long race would for, for a week or two. But I do feel like that stimulus can be invaluable. So there's something there. You led me into the thing that I wanted to say, which is I find there to be uphill value in that because it's harder to let your form really crumble uphill. Yeah, your upper body might change a little bit, but your legs still have to power uphill and they keep, mm-hmm. keeps you in line a little better. So I'll do a lot of hiking finisher or like you said, now I'll go and hit 20 to 60 minutes of hills because it's just different. And it allows you to 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 work it a little differently and not for some reason it doesn't trash me like in an impact way the same as running flat does. So again, leading up to Tennessee Mile, I've said this a lot, but I would finish up a workout and then just go power hike for 30 minutes. And that's that time. That's that heart rate response you're looking for with none of the associated impact or stride deficiencies you might have. Right. Yeah, I agree with that. And his his second part was basically saying like power meter versus heart rate. And if it's hot and my heart rate's high for the given pace, like how do I, what do I base my metrics off of? Do I maybe let pace supersede heart rate or do I look at my power metrics and for me, it always comes back to heart rate. Um, I think you just have to go back to heart rate because a power meter, like, well, probably, I don't know a ton about them for running, but probably still pretty inaccurate in their infancy stage, I would assume. But um, like, think about, think about the end of like a long grueling race when you're shot and your power output is absolute dog shit compared to early in the race, but your heart rate's still at 175. It it's not indicative your power output isn't indicative of your effort necessarily all the time based on circumstances. So I just always default to heart rate. I don't know if you have a different spin on that, but for running, I don't because I feel like (sighs) running's easier to hurt yourself in the moment, like to be done and be like, Oh my goodness, that was too much. I just can't do another rep or cycling. I feel like you take a short rest and you can go thrash yourself and strive for a number again. Mm-hmm. But cyclists find themselves in overtraining holes more often than runners do because you're not fighting gravity or impacting the ground. And so one drawback, now I think power meters, when and if they ever figure it out for running, will be the industry standard. It's done so much for the sport of cycling. But the one drawback is that it doesn't take into account cost. 
and that allows cyclists to hit their numbers no matter what right up into the point where they've they have overtraining syndrome where runners always are aware of the cost mm-hmm. they might not always listen to it but they're aware of it more every rep yeah so yeah i'd like to i i always think that athletes should err on the side of being sustainable and so if you have three metrics and one of them is the low lying metric that says this is the lower ceiling than every other metrics given us for this workout you take that metric and you live to fight another day the interesting thing about cycling is like i've gone through bouts of cycling in my life either through injury or by choice and i could go do and you can probably testify to this um like a hundred mile bike ride where i work hard i worked hard on a hundred mile time trial but like that next day I'm walking around, like, I can't even really feel it in my legs. It's like, I'm going through life and being like, huh, like I'm clouded as to how I understand what my body just, how it's paying for that effort. However, that was a five hour effort. If I went out and ran for five hours, even at a snail's pace, my body would halt me in my tracks and be like, nope, you, you know, like it's clear that you need to rest because you can't put your socks on without sitting down today. Um, and so I think because of the impact portion, we got built in like, uh, governors on us as runners but cyclists i agree you can you just don't really know until it's too late and then you're so far in the well that um you get overtraining syndrome you can hammer almost daily on the bike until you can't and it's harder to keep track of your your total training score so to speak when you're only looking at wattage it's the only real downside that i know it's like why the tour de france is 30 days long and the longest stage race like trail race on foot is what, like four days? It's five yeah. days. So perspective there, yeah. Uh, Adam Beach. Uh, recently, I've been trying to improve my running form. I suffer from knee pain on occasions, and in response, I attempt to increase my cadence during my easy runs, although this is difficult and hard to sustain for long durations. Once a week-ish, I finish one of my runs barefoot on turf. I've recently noticed how uh, night and day running barefoot is compared to running in shoes. My legs feel better. All niggles and nagles go away. My cadence effortlessly increases. Even my pace increases with no increase in effort. What does this say about my running form and how do I make running in shoes as silky smooth as running barefoot? Note, I usually run in Hoka or Solomon. No rush in answering and it was fun racing Kirk in jacks. This one's from a while ago. Well... This might be a candidate for a more minimal shoe. A zero drop, minimal. Yeah, there is some science that's, or some information, some data that points to loading forces being more substantial in highly cushioned shoes. A lot of that comes from the fact that you get to ignore your body's own safety system when you have more underfoot and you get to pound into it a little bit more. Some people get a little too boundy or a little out of line, out of whack with their stride when they have such a system under their foot. So I don't necessarily think that it's cushion shoes are bad for you. It's they allow you to do bad habits. So detraining a little bit. Uh, Kirk, I don't know if you know this about me. I went several years, you know, broken years, but I've accumulated several years in my life of two to three times a week hitting some grass or turf and running 20 to 30 minutes barefoot. Mm. I knew you finished some runs at times, but not like uh, 20, 30 minutes. For a while, I did it as a AM double session, basically. And I always loved it. And coaching high school was always interesting. You see a lot of goofy runners when they're really young going through puberty. Their bodies aren't 
correct yet. Mm-hmm. And they're boundy, like really slow and efficient, but you get them barefoot and they can turn over a little bit more like little kids. Little kids run perfectly. Mm-hmm. So there is some power to that. I think it's the best argument for minimal or zero drop shoes I've ever seen is how effective a lot of people run in softly and high cadence they run barefoot. But I think it's about pairing that to a style of footwear then that allows you to train long term without any of the associated drawbacks of barefoot or minimal shoes. So you might be a candidate for doing a higher percentage like that and then trying to translate that skill over. Yeah, I I guess my um, gray area on this is when he says that he is finishing his run barefoot on turf. Like if I just took a break, let's say the time to take off my shoes. But instead I was running, I just took a break and then I started running again and I was doing, I don't know, strides maybe he's doing or just a couple quick laps. I'm going to feel pretty floaty and effortless, right? Versus versus uh, if he's doing 20, 30 minutes like you were, different story. You're going to fall into place and find out um, if that's really working for you. So I guess I'm a little curious there. Like, are you stopping and doing strides on the turf? Well, that's yeah, true. you're going to feel pretty good doing that, I think, no matter what. So... I just am a little um, cloudy on that, but it sounds like he's putting in some actual time. Well, that's a good point. Taking off shoes and going barefoot or taking off your trainers and putting on flats or spikes is the fastest feeling thing in the world. 100%. What I was doing is I was starting barefoot. I'd have a 35 to 45 minute goal and I'd run until it felt like that's good. And then I'd put my shoes on and I'd continue and try to mimic what I was doing. So I was actually doing the opposite approach. I'm not saying it's the best, but it forced me to just have that feeling of starting a run and not knowing anything but run like this. I like that. I was watching. I got down the rabbit hole of uh, these past Olympics. Um, The Olympics put out like uh, history of the marathon or whatever, and they went, they kind of uploaded, I don't know, like eight to 15 minute versions of past Olympic marathons. And what was it in like 68? I don't remember the gentleman's name. He was one of a BB Bacelli or something like that. Bacelli. It was a Bacelli, I think. I know I butchered that name, but yeah. He won his first Olympic marathon on the roads completely barefoot. And it was. Is it Rome? I don't recall where it was, but I just couldn't wrap my brain around this. And this was, I mean, sure, it's a long time ago, but I believe it was the 60s, late 60s. No, it was like 64 or something. But anyways, barefoot, concrete, and you could hear his feet just slapping. And that man, you look, go back and watch like Olympic uh, marathon, uh, like the old ones. It's mind-blowing. Half the field is stopping halfway. They're basically walking in. Nobody's fueling properly. It's an absolute gong show. But uh, watch this gentleman run. The highest cadence, probably the most efficient-looking stride, even though you could hear his feet slap in the ground. You just hope he doesn't step on a shard of glass. But uh, that was chosen by an Olympic champion, yeah. barefoot. Abibi Bikila. Bikila, was it? Yeah. Won the 1960 Rome Olympics barefoot and then doubled up 1964 Tokyo. He won his second gold. I think he had shoes on in his second one because I watched watch both. So he transitioned. 5'10", 126. He's kind of tall for a barefoot marathoner or a marathoner mm-hmm. in general, but 126 certainly helps the barefoot approach. <laughs> it sure does. But Dan, can't you imagine like one wrong pebble? He has to be so calloused on the bottom oh, yeah. of his, his feet. feet are probably like those, uh, what are they, Chacos or whatever? Yeah, it's just watching him power away from whoever he was battling with in the last few miles, barefoot, mind-blowing. 
And then you think like, God, I can't run in like a, a minimalist shoe for 26 miles without complaining about the impact. And here you got a guy, uh, just his bare feet. It's incredible. Um, next one, Stephen Porter. To start off, I want to let you know I love the podcast, and it honestly just keeps me motivated. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Um, I do have one question that I have been dealing with for a bit, and that would be knee pain. It seems to hurt in different areas of the knee all the time. My doctor said it most likely just from my body being tight. Are there any stretches and ex exercises that would help this knee pain that you would recommend? <laughs> Who's this doctor of yours, Stephen? <laughs> I mean, he's not wrong, but... <laughs> Let's focus in on an area that could be tight to start helping this man. <laughs> I agree. I agree. He gave him the broadest stroke you could give. Your body could be tight. Like a tiger. Well, dumb a runner. My body is tight. What's the rule? If it hurts somewhere, look up and look down. You usually go down to the ankles and feet or up to the hip. Yeah. So let's start there. Check your mobility in your ankles and feet and in your hips, hamstrings, and lower back. And if you find some tightness there... Or even if you're not sure, that's where I would start. Hmm. I I guess we don't know, like, where is the knee pain? Is it sharp? Is it dull? Is it wear on yeah. you as your run goes? There's, there's, like, so many unknowns that I don't think we can responsibly answer that question. But I will tell you that, like, stretching your knee, not what we're going for here. Stretching everything that <laughs> inserts into the knee is what we're going for. And that actually means that everything, like, I, I think the big three when you're looking at mobility is hamstrings, glutes and hip flexors. Those are the three most important in my opinion. And I think if you, you loosen up your glutes, your hammies and your hip flexors, it is going to alleviate at least in some regard, most of the over chronic use annoyances that we deal with, just like opening all those up and what the hip flexor inserts into the hip in some regard, the hamstring inserts into the hip and the glutes certainly insert into the hip in some regard. So all we're doing is just like alleviating some of that pull from like the major, some of the major propulsion movers, of our of our lower body and so those three just give them focus what does that mean like 20 minutes of true um static stretching actually after your efforts really like re-sweat like is in a sense like you're in like you're really sinking your teeth into these stretches you know three four times a week and and just see if anything starts to loosen up on you there um that's what i would recommend if if you're if you think you actually are tight and having pain because of it yeah but yeah, maybe a follow-up question. Mr. Porter it was, I believe. Yep. Mr. Porter, location of pain and intensity of pain and type of pain. So a torn meniscus is going to be different than a tight hamstring. Yeah. I had somebody come in, say, the other day, said that they had a, they believe it's a torn meniscus. They have, they're having some knee pain. It's a client of mine, actually. I saw him yesterday, Paul. Um, and he's like, yeah, torn meniscus, not a big deal though. Like, you know, I'm just gonna keep running through it and you know, they'll just heal themselves. Don't they? He said like that. I just don't have to worry about that. And I was like, well, not exactly. Well, they do when they don't. And it's mostly don't. It's mostly don't. Yeah. I was trying to talk him into some sense here. So maybe he'll go to the doctor. Um, Kenny Wade, who, uh, I already actually read something from him. Um, but we're, we're in front of this one Bracken. So we, we, des he deserves an answer. You know what? Let's shuffle it. Let's move on. Decca Strong is coming to Boise, Idaho, June 18th, and I signed up because Grayson Kilgore recruited me to. What are your recommendations on training prep? So, Decca Strong. Lots of Metcons. Lots of circuit work. Get strong and then pair it with high, fast rep circuits. There's no running. But the fact that there's no running 
And the fact that most of the stations are short means that Deca Strong is a competition of the assault bike. I mean, look at uh, the Spartan Games. What was it? Still a twelve high twelve minute event for the winner. Uh, now that might have been. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's right. Yeah. Or Deca Heavy was it? Deca Strong. Deca I don't remember what the first one. Anyways, that's an endurance event. So like keeping up all of your aerobic work, your run work, do all of that, and then switch out or add on the Metcons, as you say, with the right implements. Yep. And you just got to be good on the skier, the rower, and the assault bike, but primarily the assault bike because it hits late. I mean, you got to be able to spin those machines. You've got to be able to move them under duress, but that assault bike is the game changer in Deca Strong. You have to be strong on that. That's where it's won or lost because then you have to go do ram burpees afterwards. Just, you know, yeah, exactly it. So assault bike, strength, wads, back and forth, high output, hate your life, two to five minute intervals, rest, repeat, um, really fill up, go anaerobic. I think that would be a, a good start. If I were training him, I would say keep all your running, but your quality days are now skier and rowers. Yep. And then we are still lifting a bit, but we're adding in more quality in circuits and we are hammering that assault bike. I agree. I like that. Uh, Scott Lurg says, now that the Q&As have cleared out, here's another one for you guys. Is there any benefit to doing a mid-season base block? I know there are hill blocks, sharpening, championship, skill, etc. But if you are mid-season and feel you need more endurance, early season sprints to late season beasts, does it make sense for two to four weeks of return to base? Thanks, Scott. No one ever had too much aerobic power. No one ever thought, man, I wish my aerobic capacity were lower. It's true. I got a few athletes who have been racing a good bit this spring and after big bear, we're going back to basics for an entire month or six weeks because it's the right time to re reset, relay a foundation, um, so that you can maybe build even a little higher later in the year. So I think, yes, I think almost we should try to find a space in the middle of the year to maybe even refocus on base for a short period of time. Yeah. And I like to use it a bit as a reset and then a bit to try to raise my ceiling, try to push my volume bigger than I had in my first base build. I think it's a good time to use it to improve your fitness. So recover from the work of the first half, but you can improve your fitness in base building by pushing the volume up a bit. Obviously stay safe with it, be smart about it, but this is the time to push it a bit. Yeah. I I mean, we could answer, we could go into depth on that, but I think leaving it at that is, yes, smart idea. And also, if you're looking towards end of season big races, you can build base up and downhill. So don't be afraid to hit some vert during this second base build. Yep, I agree. Uh, This is from screen name June Kim 718 Uh, Hi, Kirk. Please run a road marathon. Selfishly, I plan on doing a fall marathon, and I would love to follow your journey. You'd get some respect for OCR runners. Check out Nell Rojas on the Sidious Mag podcast. She said her brief stint in OCR was the hardest thing she ever did. That's a tip of the hat to our sport. It's, I mean, it sounds self-serving. Even though this is a running podcast, we're clearly OCR athletes. We've done every type of running there is. We've run track. We've run cross country. We've run ultra marathons. We've done trail races. We've done mountain races. Nothing hurts worse than OCR. Oh. It's because you don't know it's going to slap you in the face when or as hard as it does. And all of a sudden you're caught with your pants down and you're like, oh my God, I am, I am past the point of redemption here. And in running, we typically get to calculate that a little bit. It's true. 
And the only thing harder than running hard and fast is doing that with tired arms and core and every little little supporting muscular system that you don't use while running. So I'm not saying it's the best style of, of racing because it's it's not. There's no such answer to that. It's personal. I'm not putting it on a pedestal because I don't think it deserves to be on a pedestal. But it stands alone as the most miserable type of racing I've ever done. Especially when you really sink your teeth into it. Like when you're really committed. The only thing close to it was steeplechase and triathlon. Hmm. Now, ultras hurt in a different way. The 800 and the 1500 meter and the 400, they hurt in a different way. But in terms of actual intensity and duration and suffering, triathlon was the only thing that got close to OCR. Hmm. That transition off the bike onto the run feels like every compromised run I've ever done in my life in a race. It's wild. Yeah, I agree with that. Well, maybe I'll go out there and, and earn some respect for the OCR community. Put some respect on your name. Preach, appreciate the, the vote of confidence. Uh, Mark Witt. Can someone please interview Alexander Peikoff? I don't know him personally, but I've been following him for years, and he is the definition of a hidden gem. His last adventure was a 635-mile solo run across Greece to Sparta just so he could scream out, this is Sparta. I have no idea why he hasn't gone viral yet. He has also run across New York State and biked from Florida to Arkansas, all solo trips, and all brilliantly documented on his YouTube channel. Here is the last video he posted on his final run to Sparta. And again, I have zero ties to him. He doesn't have any many followers, and I just think he would be an amazing guest. Thanks. As someone who enjoys great fits of fitness, feats of fitness, running 600 miles across Greece, that that intrigues me. As someone who has refused to ever shout, I'm a Spartan, or the word Aru in my life, because it's embarrassing, uh, that finisher doesn't give me any any intrigue to talk to the guy. So hopefully he's more of the former than the latter. I can't imagine he actually ran 635 miles just so he could shout, this is Sparta. If you ran across it, would you have done that? If nobody was around, maybe. Really? Maybe. I don't know. I feel like this Ugh. is our point in the relationship where I found out about someone you dated back in the day. And like think, I, really? Uh-huh. You heard oh. me sing in the car for the first time, and it's repulsive. Um, I truly, one of the most (laughs) distasteful part of the entire OCR experience is the, the chanting at the start line and shouting It's so painful and it's so half-assed, especially in the elite field because it's just silly. Which is a huge improvement. At its inception, there were guys that lived for the moment to scream Aru at the top of their lungs into the camera. And every time I just wanted to like fade into the, into that bush into the background like homer simpson they could do without I, I can't it. take that part of the sport they could do without it well this guy's getting after it anybody who's going after life this hard is probably worth talking to and probably has some interesting perspective so i'm gonna i'm gonna keep him on on the list here tell you what i will watch at least two of his youtube videos because i give everyone a the benefit of prove me wrong or prove me right so I'll watch two. So all you don't like about this guy is that he yelled, this is Sparta on top. Otherwise, like that can overshadow that can overshadow all of the other things. Well, I only know two things. One is that he's done some incredible endurance events, apparently. And the other is that allegedly the impetus for doing one was that so he could shout, I am Spartan. So yeah, there's two this things. This is and Sparta. They are contrasting. 
Well, neither. Based neither off the movie, really. not Spartan. But maybe worse. I don't know. That's a. It's is not that's a bad like movie. getting on the front of a cruise ship and yelling, <laughs> "I'm king of the world." <laughs> like that. That guy doesn't do anything for me. Isn't that what Rubus did? Didn't Didn't Rubus yell, "I'm king of the world" somewhere? At the finish line of a race. Yeah, <laughs> that's better. I knew that after the fact. I wouldn't have let him on otherwise. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> no, anyways, what I'm saying is I know one thing and a second thing, and they cancel each other out. So his two videos that I will watch will be the determining point. If it's not just – if it's if it's awesome stuff, well, let's have him on. It took him three seconds to say, I am Spar- here is Sparta, and it took him three months – of doing the real gritty work that can't possibly overshadow the three seconds of proclaiming this it's is It's the thought that counts, Kirk. If you nah. do it for the wrong reason, it doesn't. So anyways, I'm not going to pass judgment yet. I'm going to watch his videos. And if he's more I am Sparta than he is all the other things, I'm going to give it a pass. And if his <laughs> stuff gets me through workouts and I think this is pretty awesome, let's bring him on. Honey, we're going to have to continue this conversation when people aren't around. Cat. Vorkapich says, Hey guys, just a quick note to say. I love Q&A, and epi- uh, Q&A episodes. Don't apologize for them. Sweet. We're not sorry for this one. I second the opinion that we love to hear from accomplished age group athletes personally. Have no competitive athletic background and just picked up OCR at age 40. Thanks for saying that you can rock a dad bod or mom and still crush races. Thanks for explaining why you never mention ultra shoes. I respect your opinion, so that's always made me curious. Uh, on that note, any chance you'll try out the new ultra carbon shoe would love to hear that review as well. Keep crushing it. Your banter is the most entertaining thing to listen to. Shucks. Thank you. You can ever try the ultra. Here's the deal about like disclaimer PSA. This is our, our monthly reminder to not choose your shoes based off what someone else does or believes. So the fact that we don't seek out ultra shoes for racing because we don't like the way they hold us in place on descents doesn't mean that you shouldn't try it. Just because I don't want to train every day in zero drop doesn't mean it's not good for you. So there's the disclaimer out of the way. I am not going to seek out Ultra's new super shoe simply because it doesn't check the boxes of something I personally would pay for. And that's it. However, if someone were to send the shoe... I would faithfully put it through its paces and give an accurate depiction of my experiences in it and who I think it would work well for. So, no, I'm not going to seek it out because it's far too much money for me to just test out for the sake of I'm curious because I'm I'm honestly I'm not that curious about it. But if it were provided, I'd get curious real quick. Yeah, I appreciate the message. Um, Those very kind words to say. Uh, Bracken, you know that I have been an ultra fan in the past and I have... Mm -hmm warn them so my curiosity is probably a little higher than yours because the right ultra like when i don't like the lone peaks as much recently they became even more minimalistic but like the old lone peaks and me had a really good thing going for a few years when they were real ugly and they looked real icky Mm -hmm. really liked that shoe really liked the escalante for some things so i could see i could see that shoe being a good shoe because it might give ultra that spring that it doesn't really have yeah Um, so there's a chance there it turns the shoe that i think is that at times can feel a little, I don't know, it it lacks propulsion to a shoe that maybe gives you some, and that could be, I don't know, could be a nice combination. I feel like Kat said nice words about us, so she deserves a real reply from me. Here is why I'm not going to seek out that Ultra. 
A, I have liked, my favorite Ultra Shoe of all time was the one, Ultra One V3, which was a dud in the eyes of most Ultra uh, Ultra users, but that was my favorite Ultra of all time. I loved it for running fast on the roads, but every step past a couple miles, it got significantly worse for me, not because of cushioning, but because of the zero drop. It takes work for my legs to do. So even though I like where they went with their Ego midsole foam, and I think that their super critical version of that is probably a special foam, it doesn't negate the fact that it is zero drop. So no matter how much of that I put underneath me, I'm still going to deal with the stress on my rear chain of zero drop shoe. And since a super shoe is created, that one particular, for half marathon and longer, you know, at 10K and un- 5K and under, it's debatable if they actually improve you or not over a regular flat. 10K and longer, they absolutely do. I wouldn't want to be in zero drop for longer than 10K, so it doesn't excite me. Mm-hmm. Plus, half the magic of the plate is the angle of its curve, and you don't get an angle correctly. Not correctly, but the way that it's currently been used in the industry without a drop to it. Mm-hmm. So maybe they have something in it that I need to experience. But those are the reasons why for the price point of over $200, it doesn't thrill me. Because it's it's intended for a distance I can't race zero drop for. Well explained. Thank you. Justin Lund. So a question that could encourage some thought for a Q&A. Cycling is big on power metrics such as watts, watts per kilogram, functional threshold power, etc. Now I know that runners typically don't train this way. It's all about pace and heart rate. For OCR and trail runners, one, why don't they use these metrics with something like the stride pod? Two, would there be a situation currently where you could see this changing the way runners train? Also, over the last two years, the speed and fitness have been dropping off but could still put up good times for me that have been consistent over the years for track and trail running. But this year on my 41st trip around the sun, it all dropped quickly and the once in a while issues just became a daily challenge. Do you think that a cyclist can hang on a little longer due to the low impact? Thanks, guys. In reverse order, the reason I don't currently use a stride is because it's the future, it's not the present. They're getting better each iteration, but they still can't account for terrain the way you would like them to. So especially a trail runner, that's why you don't see it, because it doesn't know how technical, how soft, how spongy, how wet your terrain is. It can account for uphill versus downhill. That's something they've improved upon, but I actually see it as more useful for a marathoner or maybe an Ironman athlete, someone that's long and steady and can just dial into, this is my accurate pace, or this is my accurate output versus pace. Getting caught up in a pack of runners can kind of get people outside of their their mm-hmm. rhythm. Uh, so, so that's where I think it, and it will always have to be paired with a heart rate for runners. I firmly believe that because of the impact in fighting gravity. You'll have to know your heart rate zones, how they match up to your power. So a standalone stride, I don't think, is worth it for anyone. You have to pair it with a good heart rate monitor. But until they figure out how to account for actual terrain and firmness of that terrain... It's still a non-starter. Yeah, I agree with that. I think it is the future. It's not the present. I think there's always going to be subjectivity to it, no matter how good it gets. More subjectivity than there will be with cycling um, or like a skier or anything like that. So I don't know what you do with I don't know what you do with it. I don't know if it'll ever catch on. I'll be curious. I think if they can figure out how to make an autonomous car, they can figure out how to do that. Those are certain things that we always saw as sci-fi 
are coming true. And if they can calculate everything they need to for self-driving vehicles, drones, aircrafts, I think they'll figure it out eventually. But it is not a trillion dollar industry. And so you are not getting the massive funds pushed behind it needed to spearhead that movement quickly. So it's the future, but I don't even think it's the near future. What does a stride pod cost? Do you know? Oh, I wanted to say 280, but don't quote me on that. I'm going to look it up right now while you start addressing the second part of that question. Yeah. Do you think that a cyclist can hang on a little longer due to low impact? Yep, I do. I do think that mostly from a staying healthy standpoint, a wear and tear standpoint, meaning you're most likely going to be able to still train at a high capacity without setbacks due to the non-impact way that biking is. So my answer is yes, but basically because of the fact that I believe you can stay injury-free longer and ultimately you're less likely to hit a big setback in your 40s that never allow you to recover the fitness you once had in your 30s. That's going to be my spin on that. I agree with you. First off, I just checked. It's 220, not 280. My apologies, Stride. Yeah, I agree with you 100% on that. Uh, Justin, what I would look to is what coincided with your gradual decrease over the last few years as you stopped hitting your metrics. I also believe you went bigger on mountain biking during that time, if I recall correctly. So did your running fade in training over that time but your added cycling kind of staunched the flow for a little bit and it happened to coincide with getting older a couple years of less running more cycling and you finally get caught up eventually some of that base of speed and stamina eroded from a running specific um, modality like i said that i'm gonna move us on because i got a 15 minute time cap and we have I think we can get through everything. I think we can clear the cash. All right. I'll try to keep myself on a Twitter word count limit here. Character limit. Marcus Borman emailed me these questions, which people rarely do. So I know he's serious. He says, sorry to overload your one email with questions, but these questions I think fit perfectly for the podcast. Plus Q&A episodes are my favorite. Don't feel like you are cheating by doing Q&A episodes. He's got three questions here. So one fun one to start. What would be one thing about Spartan races you would change? I know there is a is not always agreement with the Spartan com- uh, company, and judging can be spotty, but the race itself, what could change to improve it? As someone who has never done a Spartan race, but simply just a fan now after listening to the podcast, 30 burpees for missing a spear is bonkers. Okay, well, first of all, thank you for listening, even though you're not a Spartan athlete and you're asking Spartan-esque questions. Uh, piquing your curiosity makes me feel good about the work we're doing. Um and what do you got, Brecken? What's the one thing you would change about the rules out on course if you could just have one? As foolish as burpees are, they're so tied to the brand that I actually have like some weird appreciation for them because they shake the race up so dramatically. Mm-hmm. And I would also argue maybe even less than mandatory completion obstacles when someone gets stuck for 20 minutes at a rig. I agree. We've had people come back from burpees and win or still place. I, it's, uh, it feels like cheating. Like it's just... You know, being one of the OCR sheep that says the same thing that everyone else says. But I've been there since the beginning, and I believe they've stopped trying on obstacles. I want them to start trying. Innovate, obstacle innovation is such a buzzword, but I'm going to say it. Obstacle innovation. Keep challenging the race. Uh, I do not believe standardizing an off-road race experience is the way to grow it. It's the worst thing for the sport. It's the worst thing for the sport. True. I think standardizing a short course sterile environment, sure. 
but I don't even know if that's what our sport is. So I would I would grow the obstacles, expand them. I would get creative. I don't even know if you have to make them more difficult, but you have to make them not just like go crawl through a pipe layer. That's if you're going to do it, make it 100 feet long. You know, get creative with things. But they want to make us look cute in our photos as we're crawling through them like cats. Do it 100 feet long. That changes things. That at least tires apart or breaks rhythm a ton or make us carry a sandbag through it. Just get creative. I want to see creativity back. They have they have slightly sanitized the terrain we run on, and they have stopped pushing for any more of innovation on obstacles. Yeah, two things, tie for me, and one is back to Spartan of old. We know the distance. Maybe we get an elevation profile, and we know absolutely nothing else. And it could be something none of us have ever seen before. The mystery would have me coming back. It might have me in Big Bear this weekend, to be honest, but it doesn't. Worst thing for the sport's been standardization. Worst thing for continuing to get athletes and new athletes in the common population to come back is standardization. Mm-hmm. Um, getting an off-road race into the Olympics will not happen. Not in our lifetime. So, uh, that's so embrace a, it. Embrace, embrace being the gritty it. race. Um, and then the other thing is I think there needs to be tiered burpees for the race distances. 10 burpees for a sprint, 20 for a super, 30 for a beast. I think, uh, I think you tier the burpee, uh, the burpee number. Simply that way it's still 10 burpees in a sprint, huge penalty, but it still keeps things interesting. Um, so I think a tiered burpee system would, would be, would make a lot of sense to me. I like it. Yeah. That's it. I've thought that for years. Second, my daughter is going into her junior year of high school and wants to try cross country again. She did it a couple of years in middle school. I would say if she trains well this summer, she could potentially be high on JV or low in varsity. Good shoe recommendations. Does she need to go spikes or should she use trail shoes, but maybe a trail shoe that she can also take on the road to do runs around the house for training? Willing to absolutely buy her what she needs, but not sure if this is a one season thing or what. So hesitant to just buy a bunch of shoes to see what works best. Very, very practical question. It is. Mm -hmm. I loved what my parents did, which was they said, there will be a racing shoe waiting for you at the end of the summer if you buy in throughout the summer. If you put in the work throughout the summer to justify the need for a racing shoe, we will buy you a racing shoe. I love that. So that's, I really like that because no, not everyone needs to be in spikes. People out there running 28, 30 minute 5k races are actually being impeded by being in minimal, you know, flimsy little, uh, spikes. That's, that's not helping them. They should be in more cushioned trail shoes that'll help them turn their feet over a little bit. So you have to earn racing shoes. That's the way it was in our team and our conference. You didn't buy nice spikes until you were fast. And I like that concept. Earn it. Yep. I very much agree with that, Bracken. It's good. Or just get her, get her a lighter weight trail shoe trainer to start with somewhere in the middle. It, 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 what it sounds like at her level, like the shoe is not going to make the athlete not even close. It's not going to matter, especially in her introductory season back. So Get her like, don't get her a big clunker of a trail shoe. Get her one that maybe feels light on her feet and she likes and they look cute. Um, and she can do everything in it. Go to a running store for the trainer because he did ask about a trainer recommendation and have her try every single neutral shoe on and let her pick, pick the one that makes her feel comfortable and cute. Yep. That's your best shoe. Cute's important. Uh, three, my biggest question. I feel like every time gray zone comes up, a different answer comes up. I think this is because you are speaking to a different audience each time, but can you help clarify for my particular set of circumstances? I try to get six hours of running in per week. However, the majority of weeks, I only get three to four hours, work, family, etc. 
When I get six plus, I really try to hit the 80-20 principle. However, when I hit three to four hours, which seemingly does very little damage, I live a lot in the gray zone between marathon and half marathon pace. Is this okay since I am not doing enough damage to make it matter, or am I missing certain adaptations by doing this? No races on the schedule, but I would guess my next race would be a road marathon with a 325 goal, if that matters. I really like this question. Might be my favorite one of the whole podcast. It's a good one. I think we've been consistent for a while that gray zone is anything that is above your aerobic training zone. So I'm talking aerobic threshold to bottom of lactate threshold. Everything in between ventilatory one and two is gray zone where it doesn't have a defined zone. And no, if you're running three days a week and you're doing like up-tempo running, which is, you know, marathon pace to half marathon three days a week, I don't think you're leaving much on the table. You're just running moderately. Our issue with gray zone, and I'm going to be as concise as possible, is it doesn't drive enough adaptation to be worth the little bit extra recover you need. But if you're only running three times a week, you're already recovering up plenty. So knock yourself out. I still, you need, you need one, you need one aerobic run in there. You know, I think it just for sake of laying a foundation, I've been a three day a week runner many times in my career and two, two times a week, I swing the hammer hard and I swing it. And then the other time is just chill. Um, and I'm, yeah. I'm mixing in some cross training. So that kind of mud, muddies the water, but, um, even if, I would still prefer to see you swing it so hard that you hate your life one day a week and then the other two or three you just run easy. I think that would move the needle more for you than going and running mm-hmm. marathon pace or heart rate every time you go out. I think you'd get better fitness off of one inside-out effort and um, a handful of aerobic efforts in between. Oh, I would agree. Oh, okay, I would good. agree. But three days a week versus doing that six or seven I think is night and day. I do agree. I do agree. I think you're not playing the under recovery issue with three days a week. And that's why I say, yeah, you're not hurting yourself. You're just maybe leaving a little bit on the table. Yeah, that's fair. And I agree with that. We got two more and I think we can do it. Um, Landon Han. Hey guys, question for you about VO2 max. According to my Garmin, mine has dropped significantly from an excellent close to 50 and fitness age of 20 to poor now at 41 and a fitness age of 40. Most of my freaking Garmin. Most of my runs right now are zone two to three, usually on the treadmill where my watch reads a shorter distance and slower pace than what the treadmill reads. Am I overthinking overreacting to information that likely isn't accurate due to some of those variables? Do I need to do more high intensity max heart rate work? In contrast, my resting heart rate is consistently in the mid upper forties when it was in the low to mid fifties. Love the podcast. Hope to meet you at a race sometime. Yes. The answer is yes. You are overthinking and overreacting to information. That means absolutely nothing. I bet as you wrote that out, you understood probably what you, what you should do. And as Kirk read it, you definitely understood it. That's sometimes one of those things that you just got to get outside your head for a second and you realize, oh, I stated the fact that I'm indoor doing zone two training. My watch thinks I did less and at a slower pace. So your watch doesn't know anything other than what you tell it through your wrist. And it thinks you're going less distance and taking more time to do it. And so it thinks you have detrained. That's it. It is not a smart watch. It is a dumb watch that only knows how to interpret what you tell it. So it doesn't go any farther than that. Resting heart rate, trending in the right direction. Zone two to three running is just fine for you. 
Yeah. And is, are you relying on the heart rate monitor built into your watch or is it syncing with an external heart rate monitor? I mean, anytime that I have mountain races coming up and I'm chasing vert, like my Garmin thinks it took me five minutes to go a quarter mile. And then it tells me I'm deconditioned because it only counts for horizontal feet, not vertical feet when it calculates your metrics compared to previous. And then, I mean, for example, on my treadmill, I might be running eight minute pace, but it says I'm running 630 pace. Like, so it gives Mm -hmm. me the benefit, but mine doesn't, Mine doesn't take the treadmill data and use it towards my VO2 max or my lactate threshold. It knows to ignore that data. So I'm confused why yours is acknowledging it. He might not be using treadmill function on his watch. Yeah, you got you to use a treadmill function on your watch. That would negate the whole dang problem, sir. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that's what it is, but it could be that, yeah. All right, last one. I think we're going to make it, Bracken. Uh, Mark Martinez. This feels so good. I'm going to delete the last one in this. I know you have some left. I don't know. I'm reading through right now. Okay. Mark Martinez. Gents, for the next Q&A, the Rubus slash No Excuses episode made me think great episodes. My question, when doing compromise running with a focus on base building, should I focus on pace, heart rate, or distance? Example, I decided to take after Rubus and do circuit workouts in my backyard. I'll do two calisthenics exercises then run, jog a quarter mile around the yard. When running, what would benefit my base building? Or can you offer some tips for this kind of circuit workout? Keep the hits rolling. Love the show. So he's he's asking how to approach your running when base building, but wanting to do compromised work. That's the abbreviated version. Yeah. Uh, my belief is that you run lactate threshold or slower, and it fits base building just fine. However, you real quickly get into gray zone, as people say. So what is the purpose of the running during your circuits? Is it to gain fitness? If so, try to run aerobically. You can run up to high end aerobic. Who cares? That'll help. If it's not for the purpose of fitness, if it's just active recovery between your circuits, you can do the little death jog. You can jog around at 12 minute per mile. Doesn't matter. Just get recovered. So either way, stay aerobic in your base building. Stay slightly anaerobic still base building yeah in this circumstance i would lean towards like you know what let it rip let it spike on the strength work like go to town if you get a big spike out of there good for you nice job and then you go and just run like you run until your heart rate gets back down into recovery zone and you keep it there uh and then when you hit the the next time for do your strength circuit you don't look at your heart rate you just hit it hard and then you just make sure you get back into it it's a good way to build fitness without burnout and it's predominantly going to be aerobic base building work anyways. And then coupling the skill work of the compromise stuff will translate to race course later on. Um, so I, I like that approach. I take that approach a bit myself sometimes. So mm-hmm. yeah, that's we right. We talked about it. My strength runs on Strava are that through their power hiking or slow jogging at somewhere between 10 and 20% with work in between. I'm doing actual work on the lifts and then I'm just active recovery. And like you said, that pairs later. That is base building for compromise run later. Yep. I've noticed, and you know, I've mentioned this a few times recently now is, you know, I do one structured strength workout a week and I do one in which I'm on and off the assault bike. Like Monday, I did an 80 minute Metcon, we'll call, where I biked aerobically, hopped off strength, um, hop back on. Anyways, my heart rate would spike on some of the strength work where I would do like a set of pull-ups to failure, a set of push-ups to failure, hop back on the, on the assault bike. And my heart rate will always pop afterwards. And then I let it come back down, but yet I was very well recovered for my next quality day on Tuesday. It still worked, you know, uh, granted there's no lower body dom. So anyways, um, 
you can let that needle move a little bit on the on the strength side when you're doing that style. Absolutely. Yep. Hey. Did we do it? You did it. Did you do yeah, it? Yeah, I have three, but they came in today. They can wait. Okay. Well, then uh, I'm empty. My Q&A folder is blank. Gotta be a good feeling. <sighs> Feels like I just spring cleaned. It's nice. Thank you. Well, you got to work? Is that what you're doing now? I got an athlete call in uh, 10 minutes, and uh, I need to prep for it, actually. I need to re- re- read over their answers to some questions. So. Well, I've got to go get my groin checked out, so I'm going to do my doctors a favor, and I'm going to go shower. Mm, good luck, man. You'll have to keep us posted. Te- shoot me a text at least right away. I'd like to hear what they I suggest will. if you could. Um, and don't forget, go check out Race Brain. Go subscribe right away if you like it. Let us know you like it so we keep doing it. Um, we got our plates pretty full with all our podcasting um, and mixing work and family and everything into it. But this is a worthwhile venture for us if we feel like it is taken as such. So um, help us out in that regard if you can. And tune in this weekend, High Rocks World Championships. I will be commentating with Matt B. Davis, live streaming it. And I believe it's going to be a pretty quality stream this time. I don't think we're relying on the same bad service cell phone as usual. I could be wrong. It might just turn into that, but at least you expect that already. But it could be a pretty awesome production. It's going to be show a show there in, in Vegas. So tune in Saturday. Good luck, Bracken. Thank you. Thanks, folks. Thanks, folks.